Okay, Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, friends, my name is Henrik Urdal and I'm the director here at the Peace Research Institute Oslo PRIO. It is my great pleasure to welcome you to Oslo and to our headquarters here and to this final event of the PRIO AI Days titled Artificial Intelligence and the Return of Great Power Competition. PRIO is an independent, international and interdisciplinary research institute specializing in peace and conflict research. In our role as a research institution, our primary contribution is the production of rigorous academic analysis. However, our aim is that this effort shall have an impact beyond academia, facilitating knowledge-based policymaking grounded in information, analysis and facts. The purpose of the PRIO AI days is to shed light on applications of artificial intelligence in areas relevant to peace and conflict, with research-based approaches informing and engaging a broad set of audiences. We started out yesterday with a discussion on how PRIO uses language learning models to create early warning systems and long-term conflict prediction models. This morning we discussed how AI is changing the face of war with a particular focus on the challenges of international regulation. And right before lunch today we had yet another great panel on competing perspectives on global AI governance. The events that have been part of the PRIO AI days illustrate both the breadth of PRIO engagement uh, on the topic of artificial intelligence and our commitment to engage with stakeholders outside of academia. And at this point, I would also like to inform you that today's event, like the previous three events, will be recorded and made publicly available from PRIO's web pages and shared in our social media channels. So if you missed one of the events, there is a chance to listen in to those later. Then I'm very pleased to welcome today's keynote speaker, Jared Cohen. According to ChatGPT, Jared is an American author, foreign policy expert, and entrepreneur. He served as a member of the U.S. State Department's policy planning staff under both the Bush and Obama administrations. He has written several books on the impact of technology and social media on society. He co-founded and served as the CEO of Jigsaw, formerly known as Google IDs. And the last time he visited PRIO as a speaker, back in the fall of 2017, it was indeed in that capacity, arguing for more multinational cooperation to promote cyber peace and norms of cyber conflict. Jigsaw is focusing on defending uh, against cyber attacks, empowering free expression, protecting journalism and free press, and mitigating hatred and harassment online. And that's a work description that has become no less relevant or important since Jared visited PRIO last. Jared is now president of Global Affairs and co-head of Applied Innovation at Goldman Sachs, grappling with issues such as today's topic uh, on the twin forces of geopolitics and generative AI. And then following Jared's speech, we'll be joined by a very competent panel of experts, and I look forward to that discussion. But first and uh, foremost, Jared, the floor is yours. Thanks, Henrik. It's really it's it's a delight and an honor to to be back at Prio. I really think this is one of the uh, the great uh, institutions, and the research coming out of here is just it's, it's world class. And so my only regret is that my last visit was in 2017, and I am a little bit disoriented because I feel like I was in this room, but the stage was over here. Um, I got a thumbs up, so that, that, that is, in fact, the, the frame of reference. But I do, it's interesting, I've been, I, so I've been a, a senior partner at Goldman Sachs now for roughly 
15 months, so I find myself doing a lot of kind of then and now. Um, so I just addressed the Security Council um, in September, exactly one year after I addressed it wearing a Google hat. And now here I'm back at Prio wearing a Goldman Sachs hat and not a Google hat. And there's an interesting theme here because I think that in some respects that's a reflection of various changes that we're seeing happening in, in the world. And if I just reflect back, you know, it's, it's worth kind of reflecting back on, on the context of, of, of 2017. And so if I look at what was happening in the world, um, you know, the U.S. foreign policy was still, you know, very much centered around uh, Middle East and North Africa, but there was a drift uh, towards uh, the Asia-Pacific region, but that full pivot was always kind of a struggle to, to fully, uh, fully consummate. Um, when we thought about technology, it was more of technology in the context of an access revolution. And while there was some headwinds and tensions between the United States and China, it was viewed as kind of an asymmetric competition that was kind of baked into the price. Um, you know, the sort of hyperventilation around China's first mover advantage on 5G hadn't happened yet. And that was really the inflection point that kind of accelerated and ignited uh, the competition. Um, and then, you know, we were a year into to Donald Trump and the weirdness had only just kind of had only kind of just just begun. And I think there was still, you know, some who were kind of, you know, um, assuming that things would, would normalize and, and things have obviously gone in a very different direction. Um, if we're talking about then and now, um, you know, um, if you look at geopolitics then, you know, I was a CEO within the alphabet structure and there was not a better platform if you were interested in the nexus between geopolitics and business. Um, because that nexus was largely constrained to just a nexus between tech and what was happening in, 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 in geopolitics. Um, if you look at what's happening today, um, we probably are in the most unstable geopolitical moment in more than two decades at least. You know, this, you go to any part of the world, any system of government, and you hear this kind of you know, reiterated over and over again. And I think a big part of what's driving that geopolitical instability is you have these kind of two mega trends, right? So you have, again, the, 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 the geopolitics, which is largely anchored around now these tensions between the U.S. and China, and there's lots that are tributaries of that. And the war in the Middle East is a reminder that it remains very much uh, a region that's still quite, quite hot. Um, and by the way, you know, people always ask me, uh, what keeps you up at night? And, you know, up until October 7th, um, you know, I was saying the same thing over and over again, which is it can't be the case that we spent 20 years um, obsessively fighting a war on terrorism. We all went inside during COVID, focused on dealing with the aftermath of a pandemic, woke up, decided that the geopolitical center of gravity was now in Washington and Beijing and extremism wasn't a thing anymore. Um, that's just not, it's, it's not how it works. You can dismantle ISIS, you can dismantle Al-Qaeda, but at the end of the day, top to bottom, you can't dismantle these entire networks. And I just always believed that I would wake up one day and we would find ourselves dealing with this threat again. I just didn't expect it to be in the Israel uh, Palestinian context. So the first mega trend is around you know these geopolitical the, the sort of geopolitical uncertainty that's being driven by you know the two kind of preeminent powers um, you know kind of moving closer and closer uh, to a geopolitical confrontation. But the second is the most significant technology invented um, since the internet, which is which is generative AI. Um, you know when I used to write about you know technology, what I used to say is in the future human beings and computers will split duties according to what they're both good at. Humans are really good at emotion and sentiment and love and feeling and computers are really good at needle in a haystack problems. And it just turns out that, that you know, there's very few things that, um, you know, are distinctly human capabilities now that 
we can't imagine at least a path for generative AI to be um, able to make some kind of a, a, a play. Um, so in this context, again, with these kind of two mega forces, geopolitics and generative AI that are separately and together rattling markets um, and turning every business and every sector and geography upside down and broadening the nexus between geopolitics and the entire business community and broadening the technology conversation from one of digital transformation to larger existential threats for businesses and questions about efficiency. What I want to do today is kind of you know, talk about three different um, three different pieces of this. So the first thing I want to talk about is just a reflexive, um, the reflexive impact um, that sustained tensions between the U.S. and China are having on the business community more broadly. Um, the second thing that I want to talk about is kind of more affirmatively, as tensions between the U.S. and China get worse for longer, which countries are actually well positioned to benefit from those tensions, and I'll talk about the rise of these geopolitical swing states. And then the third, in the context of generative AI, I want to talk about um, a sort of concept that I'm playing around with that I'm going to test on all of you, which is this idea of the emergence of a generative world order, which I'll, I'll sort of spell out, and I'll, 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 I'll finish there. Um, but let's first start with the, the kind of the reflexive, the reflexive impact. Um, so how did we find ourselves in a situation where you have, you know, um, this sort of this this, this this kind of two plus decade moment of instability in geopolitics, and what appears to be, in my, at least in my opinion, tensions between the U.S. and China that are going to get much worse, uh, not much better, even if there's moments where it feels like temperatures are cooling down. Um, so part of my job as president of global affairs at, at Goldman Sachs is, you know, I have the mandate to kind of talk to as many, you know, different leaders of countries um, around the world on a regular basis as possible. Um, it's a big part of, you know, how we think about our own insights, where we as an institution want to have an opinion. Um, and because Goldman Sachs is just about as regulated a financial institution as you can imagine, because, you know, geopolitics is touching every single business um, and having such an impact on the markets, uh, we find ourselves in front of a lot of these leaders. So over the last year, I spoke to 34 presidents, 23 prime ministers, and another 83 foreign ministers, defense ministers, and intelligence chiefs from 66 different countries. So it's kind of a, a nice sample. Big countries, small countries, democratic countries, not so democratic countries, geographically distributed, and so forth. And, and I would say that you know, while there's lots of nuanced differences between them, there's a couple of sort of shared sentiments, which is across the board, Top to bottom, there's a strong sense that the era of hyper-globalization probably ended several years before COVID, um, but it kind of took the trifecta of a global pandemic, um, you know, a war in Europe, and escalating tensions between the U.S. and China uh, for it to become abundantly clear that if you look at the sort of winners from the last chapter of globalization, um, and if you look at kind of the preeminent powers, uh, they're not altogether happy or totally fulfilled with the outcome that globalization ha has, has brought. So if you look at the U.S., um, you know, there's obviously a huge realization that there's an over-reliance on China for supply chains based on a kind of, you know, bipartisan, multi-administration, you know, set of assumptions that you bring China into the liberal international order um, and it'll eventually conform. Um, you know, that thesis, I think, has proven incorrect, um, led to China sort of massively catching up and supply chains being in China, you know, had certain advantages until, until they didn't. From China's perspective, um, you know, they're looking at the U.S.'s kind of unilateral and privileged position with the dollar, um, and they see the U.S., um, you know, leaning more into that position, um, and that causes consternation not just in China but within the global south more broadly. What's interesting about 
um, this sort of perception between these two countries is neither of them can really do anything about this, you know, in full scale, right? So the U.S. can sort of mitigate the risk of supply chain exposure in China. China can, you know, you know, you know, try to sort of make certain plays to achieve more autonomy within the dollar economy. But the dollar is going to remain the global reserve currency, and China is still going to be the dominant place for a lot of supply chains that, despite aspirations to reorient, are going to prove quite are going to prove quite difficult. Similarly, we're in a moment where if you look at all the incumbent architectures and multilateral bodies, uh, none of them really have the capacity, the effectiveness, or the credibility to be able to arbitrate between these two countries. And there's no great power out there that has the ability to kind of cool the temperature down. Um, and so this, this, this ends up with a, being a really kind of interesting you know, situation. It's producing what I believe is a paradigmatic shift where we used to be able to rely on the US and China to have economic interest driving geopolitical outcomes. Um, and while I'm going to sort of oversimplify, um, there's a drift, I would say a significant drift towards a new paradigm where the domestic politics um, or dynamics in both countries are driving the geopolitics, and those geopolitics are driving the economic outcomes. And what that means is, um, you know, both countries are capable of undertaking a set of decisions in service of geopolitical goals that in the medium and long term can have quite serious implications on the global economy. So I often get asked questions by kind of you know, different financial institutions and macro hedge funds and so forth, which is, you know, you know, you know, how can, you know, how can it be possible that A, B, and C might happen? Don't, you know, both countries realize the disastrous impact this will have on the economy? And the answer is um, yes and sort of, but right now geopolitics and domestic politics are, um, are top of mind. Um, so, you know, how do, you know, so then there's a, there's a few other things that I would sort of point to that kind of, you know, um, you know, address why the U.S. and China are kind of, again, moving more and more in this kind of confrontational direction. First, um, I think there's an enormous amount of overconfidence um, on the part of the CCP coming out of COVID. Um, you know, I think before COVID, they were, there, there was a, a, a context in which they were used to the business community kind of looking at a population of 1.4 billion people, uh, market people really want access to. And one of the shifts that happened in COVID is a lot of businesses around the world became much more concerned with what Washington thought and less concerned with what the CCP thought. And so the lack of foreign direct investment in, 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 into the country, I think, you know, was a bit, of a, a bit of a surprise. Second is there's just tremendous bipartisan consensus in Washington around a tough protectionist posture uh, on China. It's one of the few things both parties agree with. Um, a big part of that, which is lesser known outside of the United States, but when you talk to you know, members of the House of Representatives or senators, they point very much to the issue of fentanyl as a, as a major domestic issue for them. And a lot of the ingredients from fentanyl, um, you know, end up coming from China and crossing the border, um, uh, crossing the border from Mexico. The war in Ukraine further divided the U.S. and China. Um, the economic downturn in, in, in China is creating a lot of domestic dynamics. And then I think there's just a total breakdown of diplomatic crisis management infrastructure that at times feels like it's getting better. Um, but, you know, top to bottom, you know, I think we're at probably a two-decade low in terms of dialogue between the two countries, both in terms of seniority and frequency. And oftentimes, a callback doesn't happen. Um, and so those touch points you know, create kind of a lack of a hotline type, uh, type dynamic. Um, so you know, look, I think Europe becomes quite important here. I think Europe becomes kind of the, the, a, a very significant swing region. The unity that we've seen across the, the transatlantic around Ukraine is going to be much tougher to achieve in the medium and long term as it pertains to a protectionist 
coalition that the U.S. is trying to, to, to drive on, on China. And I think a couple reasons for that. One, I think in a lot of parts of Europe, industry drives foreign policy more than, more than government. Second, I think these coalition governments make it very difficult for governments to have a coherent policy. If you look at Germany, um, you know, the foreign minister, very hawkish on China. If you look at the chancellor, um, you know, more economically forward-leaning on China. And then if you look at some of the middle powers in Europe, even if they don't have exposure to China, they have exposure to um, you know larger economic uh, players in Europe that have a massive amount of exposure. So you know Austria doesn't have much exposure to, to to China, but has a massive amount of exposure to Germany, particularly in the automotive industry. So indirectly, um, you know they're they're heavily influenced by by, by German foreign policy. Um, while Taiwan gets a lot of the attention, um, the more immediate problem that, that I'm worried about is supply chains. Um, you know, China talks about self-reliance made in China 2025. Um, you know, um, you know, it talks about dual circulation. The U.S. talks about decoupling, de-risking, diversification at different times. Um, there's a real tension between the geopolitical aspirations to diversify these supply chains and the economic realities of what's, of what's possible. And to me, the mother of all questions here is where does the... So if you look at the, the supply chains that have been kind of labeled strategic, you have critical mineral and rare earths, um, you have microelectronics, energetics, pharmaceuticals, other forms of, of, of technology, to some extent food nutrients. And in each of these categories, to me, again, the most important question is where does the integrated economy stop and the diversified or decoupled economy start? And you know, we need to better understand the intricacies of these supply chains so that you don't have a geopolitical overreach that leads to a backlash in the form of supply chain choking. And if you take critical minerals and rare earths just as a case study, um, you know, this is an area where I worry a lot about geopolitical overreach because if you know, if you think about everything from the energy transition to advanced weapon systems to you know the the, the hardware that goes into our phones, um, it's a six-step process that begins with mining, and you can diversify the mining. You can find lithium, and you can find you know nickel, and you can find cobalt in different parts of the world, um, but. You have to take those minerals out of the ground. They need to be crushed somewhere. They need to be converted into chemicals. They need to be processed. They need to be refined. And then they need to be turned into an end product. That is one of the dirtiest, from an ESG perspective, processes out there. China has 91% of it. It's an impossible um, uh, part of the, the, the value chain to, to diversify. Um, and that's before you get into the ESG hurdles, the permitting hurdles, the human capital hurdles, the financial capital hurdles, and the fact that you know, any sort of play in this space to challenge um, a dominant position in China would likely be met by price manipulation. And so it, it, it's, it's important to kind of illuminate um, some of the realities of this supply chain. Um, so um, you know, shifting gears a little bit, it's not all bad news. Um, right, so you know, again, my thesis is that we're going to live with these sort of tensions between the U.S. and China for longer. Um, there's a number of countries out there that are well positioned um, to, 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 to end up being kind of pockets of predictability and certainty in an otherwise uncertain, uncertain context. And so I call these the kind of the, the geopolitical swing states. And the context here is I do not believe that this is Cold War II between the U.S. and China. I actually hate the analogy of a second Cold War. For me, it has very few of the attributes of the Cold War. Uh, firstly, it doesn't have the same ideological dimension. Two, you know, China is either the second or third largest trading partner of the United States at any given time. Um, the U.S. has never been in a situation where it's one of its largest trading partners is also, you know, one of its most formidable adversaries. The economies are deeply, deeply intertwined, and neither country is seeking to destroy 
the other system or you know the the fabric of each other's society. So it's just it's it's, it's a very dangerous analogy. Um, you know, even if people like to make it, because I think again it's a very different and, and unique context. What this really is is a, it's a competitive coexistence. It's an asymmetric competition, and neither side is going to gain the upper hand without relying on other countries. Um, and so this is why I'm sort of so interested in these geopolitical swing states because there's some countries that have no choice but to be unequivocally in the China camp. There's some countries that have no choice but to be unequivocally in the U.S. camp. Um, but then there's a unique category of countries that are relatively stable, um, that have some differentiated part of the supply chain, um, that have a differentiated amount of capital, that are attractive for nearshoring and offshoring, um, that are led by individuals with kind of a global vision for their country's role in the world, um, and that have certain technological advantages. And so these geopolitical swing states, if they possess some number of those you know, not mutually exclusive categories, um, you know, find themselves able to lean into their economic advantage um, to basically you know, kind of operate more flexibly, independently, strategically, pursue their own agenda that's independent of Washington and Beijing and basically swing on an issue by issue basis. So if you look at a country like India, you know, India to me is kind of the ultimate geopolitical swing state, right? They have low cost labor, they have a ton of pharmaceuticals, they're a leader in, you know, technological ecosystems, particularly around, you know, payments and financial infrastructure, among other things. Um, and, you know, you know, when, when Russia invaded Ukraine, and this was being couched as the great battle between democracy and autocracy, um, it's a very complicated argument to make when the world's largest democracy state is neutral. Um, and you know, so the, in, India has the luxury of being aligned with the U.S., more aligned with the U.S. on China and staying neutral on Ukraine. And while the war you know, plays out in Ukraine, um, India is buying Russian crude for $12 a barrel, turning around and selling it to Europe, making it more of a redistribution uh, of energy resources than, um, than a reorientation of it, and trade between you know, India and Russia has gone up 400% since the war started, um, right, for, for a variety of reasons, right? So that's a country, and, and yet it's had zero impact on, on, you know, and won't have much of an impact on, on the dynamic between the U.S. And, and India, who will just continue to kind of lean into that relationship. But even on China, um, India will swing on an issue-by-issue -issue basis. So when I talk to the Indians about the pharmaceutical supply chain, huge demand on the part of Congress to have a diversification of pharmaceuticals, um, huge reluctance on the part of India to diversify away from China, where they get a lot of the elements that are required for them to have their own pharmaceutical supply chain. So again, we're going to see a lot of these dynamics. And if you look at Saudi Arabia and India, um, there's something also very interesting um, at play here where um, I think it would be an overstatement to say that these two countries are kind of um, emerging as kind of co-leaders of the global south. That would, be, that would be an overstatement. But part of the reason I came up with the geopolitical swing states concept is I thought that the concept of the global south was overly simplistic. It's a lot of countries. And there's a clear hierarchy that's developed. When I used to talk to the Saudis five years ago, um, or the Indians five years ago about the global south, um, they, they, they wouldn't lean into this idea that they're part of the global south, right? They're sort of emerging, you know, economies, the global south is the, the, the developing world. Now you can't get Saudi Arabia and India to talk enough about how they're part of the global south. And so, you know, part of this is there's sort of a de facto leadership that, that, that has emerged where um, these global South countries um, like having um, you know a, a country that they can lean into that's neither the U.S. 
uh, nor China, right? They feel burned because of BRI, and there's all the sort of usual set of issues between the global south and the United States. Um, and so, um, you know, so let's let's pivot now to, to to the last you know topic, which is um, you know, which is the what I sort of describe as as the generative world order. Um, and you know, so let me sort of back up and give a little bit of, of context here. Before any of us were talking about generative AI, um, the AI story went something like this, which is. Um, the U.S. had a three-decade first-mover advantage over China on technology, and after three decades, it basically ended in a tie. Right? China was producing five times before COVID. The narrative was, you know, China's producing five times the number of software engineers at the same level of skill. China's beating the U.S. in voice recognition, facial recognition, e-commerce payments. Has 80% of the commercial drone market. Um, is not just beating the U.S. in 5G. Uh, is not just have a first mover advantage in, in, in 5G, but 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 has kind of a dominant. Uh, position and the U.S. doesn't have an alternative to Huawei and ZTE other than you know Ericsson and Nokia, which are not American companies, right? And um, and it felt like you know what the U.S. had going for it was semiconductors and the fact that it still had a first mover advantage on um, artificial intelligence that China was catching up in, and the vast majority of Chinese of, of the best or top AI research papers were coming out of China. You look at their state capital, you look at the enormity of data they had. They hadn't yet. Uh, scrutinize some of their big mega, ta- mega cap tech companies. And so there was still a lot of investment flow into China and still a lot of entrepreneurship happening in China. Um, and actually, before COVID, I would have lamented that despite this first mover advantage, it felt like um, you know, because of dis and misinformation and polarization, it was starting to feel, much to my consternation, like authoritarian countries were having an easier time dealing with the challenges of being closed than open societies were dealing with the flexibility of being open. I think all of us probably felt, you know, some degree of this. And what's interesting is amidst all of this, actually, while I was, you know, at the, around the time that I was at Prio, Google published, um, uh, Google Brain published a research paper introducing generative AI. How many of you, by show of hands, you know, remember when that happened? Nobody. I, I didn't either. It was really. I, I. I vaguely remember the paper coming out, reading it, and not understanding it. Um, you know, and and you know, and it's interesting. During the era of free money and crypto, there was another narrative around AI that I would hear from a lot of AI founders, which is, I'm really frustrated. Everybody's into crypto. Everybody's moving into blockchain. People are excited about quantum computing. They're excited about fusion. And man, I feel like AI has just become super boring, or at least that's what I hear from my investors. Right? This, this is kind of the caricature narrative that I, that I would often hear. And it turns out AI wasn't boring. It turns out that you know, AI had sort of reached a certain milestone in the classical sense, and it was having a research renaissance. And the, prob- the reason you didn't hear about generative AI until November 30th of last year is it was a research push. And so let's now rewind to November 30th of last year. Um, something happened that I've never seen happen historically with any technology in, in modern times or, frankly, at any other time in history, which is um, you know, OpenAI released a web-facing version um, um, of generative AI that you know, was easy to use, play with, digest by virtue of using ChatGPT. You very kind of quickly understood um, what this was, what AI was, like my mom and you know, sort of Luddite cousins could figure it out and so forth. Um, but what was also interesting was the simultaneity of this. The entire world, from governments to companies to individuals, simultaneously found out about something called generative AI at the exact same time. And we're revisionist about other moments of simultaneity. The internet had no 
simultaneity to it. It was gradual. If you look at sort of other things that we think had simultaneity to it, they played out over many months and many years. Um, this is the first kind of significant technological moment that I'm aware of um, that's accompanied by a level of simultaneity. And so this kind of generative moment, as I call it, um, to me starts the clock, started the clock on a two-year period that I sort of describe as the generative world order. And no, this is not just kind of like me kind of putting words together. You know, there's an actual meaning behind generative world order, which is for a two-year period from November 30th of last year um, uh, until November 30th, you know, two years out, um, every country, every company, and every individual is simultaneously taking the time to grapple with what generative AI means for them, their organization, their country. Um, you'll notice there's no rejection of this or very little rejection of this as hype or mere trend. This has been kind of widely embraced at different degrees of um, sort of you know significant statements and and, and, and overstatements, and so I believe after that two year period um, the, where the, the dust will kind of settle on this and we'll have a sense of what a world with generative AI actually looks like. Countries will have largely set their agendas on this. Businesses will have largely kind of decided what their plays are on this. And all of us as individuals will have largely formed our opinions about this. And it'll sort of tweak and change and adapt and, 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 and so forth. So that, that's what I mean by the generative world order is, again, over the next two years, we're all going to kind of generate, um, generate these, um, the, 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 these mindsets. So it's very hard to predict where the technology will go. Um, I always think that's kind of a dangerous game because um, it's moving so fast, right? There are certain there are things that we know for sure, which is the models are going to get bigger, they're going to get more expensive, they're going to require more compute power. Um, you know, there's going to be more players in this space, right? There's certain predictable aspects of this, um, but I like to talk in terms of over this sort of two-year period of the generative world order, which I guess is less than two years now. Um, what are some of the inflection points that we should be watching for? Um, the first inflection point, which I think is the most significant one, is there's one you know, path that says this is going to be a sort of scale-up um, scale approach where you know, the, larger, the larger the model, the larger the sort of proprietary frontier model is, um, the more effective it will be, right? Bigger models um, produce more certain outcomes, and it's kind of a gated community um, that you can only break into if you can raise, you know, billions and billions of dollars to run these models. And they're going to get, e each year, we're just going to add billions of dollars to what it costs to run these, these models. So that's sort of the scale-up path. Um, and if that, if that path plays out, it's going to be a very small number of players. Um, the other path, which is the one that I think we're more likely to find ourselves in, is what I sort of describe as a scaled-down model. And in the scaled-down model, you, um, you're going to see more of a push into these kind of large, open-source, foundational models. And it's going to be more a story of context-specific data um, producing more useful outcomes because you'll be able to fine-tune and tailor these open-source models um, to your own data within walled gardens. And this is very interesting because this ends up favoring companies that are kind of data-rich and revenue-poor. It also ends up favoring highly regulated institutions that have, you know, proprietary data within walled gardens. And it's very hard for me to imagine we don't go in this direction, given Meta and others are kind of pushing out open source models and just given how much incentive there is to do this. And you have sovereign nations now releasing open source models. So I think that kind of fine tuning um, fork in the road is, is, is one of the inflection points. Second is right now, um, you know, in order to run these large language models, there's a heavy reliance on GPUs, which is a type of chip that was actually, you know, really about kind of gaming, right? It's, it, it's differentiated in, in terms of its 
its ability to do par- you know you know provide processing and compute power for parallel computing as opposed to sequential computing and um, you know it's just pr- they've proven very effective for these large language models. The bulk of the cost associated with running these models is about investment in GPUs. Um, there's a real question about whether we're going to end up in a post GPU world and there's going to be some other um, um, you know chip insight. Um, around this, and that's quite significant because that completely changes the, um, the the kind of the fundraising theory of change. Here, you could have a whole bunch of new companies that raise billions and billions of dollars around a GPU thesis that three years from now may prove not to be true. Third one is um, you know the U.S. and China dynamic and how generative AI plays out there. I'm going to talk about that a little more um, uh, in, in a moment. Second, yeah, and another one is. Um, Will it matter that you have the best large language model, or will models that are good enough um, be all that you know companies and uh, businesses and, and 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 governments need? And so there's a real question about whether there's sort of the research fetish of having the best model um, and the more pragmatic um, you know path of you know just using today's models, which already can transform businesses. Then there's the liberal versus the illiberal use cases. We're early. We, we still don't actually know if this is going to be a for, net force for good or a net force for ill, or it's just going to kind of mimic what we've seen in the past. Um, and then. You know, despite the fast pace of this technology, it's far outpacing um, the applied use cases. It's still, uh, we still haven't seen enough of those um, applied use cases in the, in the wild. Now, geopolitics, interestingly, is I think one of the areas where we have the best shot of, you know, kind of predicting uh, where generative AI go, goes because the internet provides us with useful kind of, you know, metaphorical training data on this because we saw the spillover um, uh, of geopolitics into the internet, and this will just happen at a, at a different scale. And I'll finish by just kind of laying out, you know, three areas uh, where we're going to see a nexus between uh, generative AI and geopolitics, where I think we know a lot and can do a lot of forecasting. I think is very interesting for a place like Prio. Um, the first is around information integrity. Um, and look, we've been through a real heck of a ride on this. It started with kind of the shock and awe of, you know, oh my God, you know, the internet can be used to, to manipulate and do dis and misinformation going back to, you know, 2016 and a little bit before. Then there was kind of a recalibration and reassessment where we kind of took stock of things, improved digital literacy, improved verification. And then there was kind of a realization that the technology has its limits and we're just kind of stuck with this, um, right? That's been the sort of ride that we, that's been the ride that we've been on. Um, AI, you know, generative AI, you know, it's just going to increase the ease and the pace of all this. And if you think about, you know, the internet, um, you know, it was sort of the internet created a zero margin cost for distribution. What generative AI is going to do is create a zero margin cost for content creation, right? That, that's going to be sort of the distinct feature. And in the future, the vast majority of content on the internet is probably going to be synthetic, um, you know, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, art, you know, digital art is synthetic, but it just a lot of the content on the internet or the majority of the content on the internet in the future is going to have some kind of manipulation. Um, and then to me, the sort of the ultimate, you know, threat to information integrity here, and Henrik, I'm still under my, my, my 40 minutes, even not counting your, your introduction. Um, uh, the, um, the, the real thing that generative AI opens up that um, uh, the internet and classical machine learning did not open up is um, risk to market integrity, right? Which is a new th- sort of theater of activity for information integrity. And so in its simplest form, you think about last May, you know, the fake image of the Pentagon, uh, the Pentagon fire that caused the market to drop, you know, 30 basis points 
um, right? You're going to see more of that. You're going to see more, um, you know, kind of systematic uh, market manipulation by, you know, kind of creating sort of synthetic, you know, videos and images that, you know, show CEOs and companies doing certain things. That's all like pretty, that's all pretty, um, pretty, pretty predictable. Um, but I think the less predictable part is you can imagine criminals kind of identifying certain securities and feeding the sort of the, the ecosystem. Let's call it the CNBC crowd, which, you know, classical machine learning wouldn't, you know, have been able to produce the type of content necessary to kind of penetrate that ecosystem. You know, a criminal sort of targeting a specific, you know, security or a specific company um, has the ability to train large language models that are kind of ensembles and hybrids of lots of different analysis and just slowly, you know, try to kind of influence, um, you know, the market, the market discourse, you know, towards some kind of an end. Um, and then, you know, of course, there, there's data poisoning of, of, of trading algorithms where you sort of feed, you know, a trading algorithm, you know, adversarial examples. It changes the sentiment of the trading algorithm. Um, and over time, uh, the algorithm performs different tasks, right? And so this is one where, um, you know, there's a huge opportunity to get ahead of this um, because we really, th this is an area we really understand. And I actually think, um, you know, the, the, the level of expertise around market integrity is vast. And you combine that with the expertise around generative AI. Um, and this is one that I think um, we can kind of preemptively address. Um, second category is great power competition, which I alluded to before. What's interesting about generative AI is it's the first, um, well, well, first, you know, it's, if, if you look at the kind of the active tech competition between the U.S. and China, um, it was largely around different verticals, right? There was sort of classical AI, quantum computing, quantum communications, you know, 5G, semiconductors, and it felt like all the verticals had been exhausted. You can't possibly imagine adding another vertical, um, but the emergence of generative AI wasn't just the um, addition of another vertical. If each of these things was mini battles, this is kind of the battle to, to, to win the war, for, for lack of a better way of putting it, or to win the, win the competition. And it's very fascinating to me because, again, for the reasons that I mentioned before, um, uh, China was catching up in just about every single area. Even on chips, they've been sort of slowly closing, closing the gap. Um, it's very clear, at least in the short term, China has a significant uphill battle as it pertains to generative AI. Um, and there's a couple reasons for that. The first is, um, interestingly, the export controls that the U.S. put um, on GPUs uh, in October of 2022. Um, those export controls were put in place before anybody was talking about generative AI. So they were put in place for a different set of reasons. And I think the U.S. kind of got lucky um, in the sense that these GPUs ended up being a significant ingredient for running large language models. And so China just doesn't have enough GPUs to provide the compute power to run all these large language models. Um, you know, the second is, um, you know, the, uh, to run these large language models, you need to train at Internet scale, in particular English scale, and for all the reasons around the Chinese firewall, you know, there's not a huge desire to, to do that. Third, just kind of culturally, um, the CCP is uncomfortable with the black box nature of these large language models. So a unique feature to large language models relative to classical uh, machine learning models is even the smartest engineers in this space, um, you know, you look at what, you know, you know, you, you look at what the algorithm, you know, produces and what the models produce, you, we don't really understand exactly how it, how it does that. 
there, there's stuff that's happening in the middle of it that are that, that, that that's still kind of a black box and not understood. Uh, and then the last is you know it, the the CCP is sort of you know from a regular regulatory perspective uh, more stringent requirements and less less flexibility. So all models are required to be registered with the government. Um, there's an audit. Uh, of all models. Um, the training data must be considered, quote, true and accurate, defined by the CCP. Um, and then um, the output must be correct, also defined by the, by the CCP. Um, now, the challenge of this, if you don't give the large language models the opportunity to be wrong, you also don't give them the opportunity to be right. So they have sort of an uphill battle on this, on this right now. Now, China is an extremely resilient country. I assume at some point, They'll, they'll figure this out, but you know, there's some breathing room um, for, for, for the U.S. And yet neither country um, can afford to cede the space or can afford to lose in the space. There's the obvious advantages of how, you know, of economic gain in terms of how this just sort of accelerates the pace of software development, accelerates the pace of healthcare, accelerates the pace of, you know, um, customer service, access, accelerates the, pay, the pace of sales and marketing. There's huge advantages in biotech. Um, um, you know, there's huge advantages in healthcare, um, huge advantages in the military for autonomous vehicles, but also intelligence. Um, there's actually a huge advantage diplomatically you, you think about you know the ability to diplomatically um, you know simulate scenarios and intelligence services having large language models associated with you know Putin and sort of various other players to really kind of game out um, you know every possible scenarios. I mean it's like a turbocharged version of debate practice um, in, in, a, in a U.S. political. Uh, in a U.S. political context, the scientific advantages I think are one of the most exciting areas in the space, from you know protein folding and 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 so forth. Uh, and then there's an ideological dimension of this as well. You're going to see more national models where the sentiment of the national values are kind of baked into those models. And every single um, one of you and your kids will have your own large language model that's your version of yourself, and it'll file, follow you around from employer to employer. And frankly, you'll negotiate riders and your agreements with your employers because that large language model of you. Is as valuable is even more valuable than your your phone number, which you don't want to you don't want to give up. And then the last you know point that I'll make has to do with 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 non state actors. Um, you know, there's obviously a widespread proliferation problem um, in the sense that there's a ton of information out there, and you know more and more pushes into the open source. Um, modeling, um, you know, just makes it easier to kind of put puzzle pieces together. Um, this has huge implications for sort of synthetic creation of pathogens and biochemical weapons. And then the one that I worry the most about, if you think about sort of a future ISIS, um, at the height of ISIS, um, you know, they would send out, you know, these recruiters to go on social media and they'd find vulnerable people in Europe and elsewhere and convince them that Raqqa was the next Disneyland and they'd come to Raqqa and join uh, ISIS. And, you know, I think terrorist recruitment in the future is going to be more a function of, you know, large language models that are trained to recruit at scale in different languages and adapt to different sentiment more, uh, more dynamically. Um, so that's where I see, um, that's where I see the sort of nexus with geopolitics and generative AI. And, you know, again, it hasn't, you know, we're, we're, this is a really interesting situation where the technology is moving really fast. The applied use cases are still very much TBD. And frankly, I'm surprised that we haven't seen a geopolitical spillover yet, which also tells you that the application of this technology in terms of real-world use cases is still very much forthcoming. So we actually have an opportunity to, to get ahead of this. And then I'll just finish with a sort of case for Norway, just because why not? Uh, I love Norway. Um, you know, I think that there, there's a real Norwegian moment right now. I think, again, if you, if, if you look at sustained tensions between the U.S. and China, if you look at how Norway has always kind of, you know, separated out its economic 
activity from its politics, but has always brought um, Norwegian values to its economic activity. You look at how your sovereign wealth fund is architected. Look at how your you know your your big companies are are are, are governed. Um, look at the history and the track record of Norway with peace and stability. Um, Add to the fact that Norway has a number of assets. You have the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world, $1.4 trillion with, with Norges Bank. You have tremendous tech expertise. Um, you're an energy giant. You have you know, huge advantages with your Arctic positioning. Um, you, know, you get the benefit of being at the center of a NATO uh, renaissance, in part because of Stoltenberg, but you know, you know, also you know, NATO's at an inflection point where I think it's just going to become a more and more important security architecture over time. Um, you're a giant in fertilizer because of Yara. Um, you're a giant in wind manufacturing, ESG, and the energy transition. And these things are all ingredients for a moment where, you know, geopolitical swing states, which I very much think Norway is, um, are really well positioned to um, you know, um, kind of take the values that it espouses and is put in its different companies and entities and project those values out in the world. And I think more often than not, that's going to have a very clean nexus um, with the United States. Um, but I also think Norway has an opportunity in, in very nuanced ways to kind of push some of your agendas um, even further. And so I think we're kind of on the precipice of this, this, this Norwegian moment. Um, and I think it's, very it's a very exciting time to be here. Um, and thank you for, for having me. Thank you so much, uh, Jared. The very thought-provoking and uh, and very stimulating uh, talk. We will be uh, having a panel discussion now, as I said at the uh, at the beginning, and we'll be both drilling down into some of these issues uh, more in more detail, uh, but also trying to broaden uh, this uh, this uh, debate a little bit. So I'll be uh, calling on our excellent uh, panelists first, uh, Katarzyna Sisk, uh, who is a and and uh, Jared, if you can take the floor at the end there, yeah. Um, chair at the end. Um, Katarzyna is Professor of International Relations and Contemporary History at the Norwegian Institute for Defense Studies, which is part of the Norwegian uh, Defense University College. She has served in a number of leadership positions uh, at the uh, Institute and held affiliations with several leading academic institutions as well as international think tanks. And among her uh, areas of expertise are Russia's uh, military strategy and uh, defense innovation and breakthrough technologies. Then we have Sylvia uh, Seres. Welcome, Sylvia. Mathematician, techie, researcher, and investor. She has studied and developed AI capabilities for three decades. Uh, so she probably remembers the 2017 uh, uh, paper, uh, including as a researcher on algorithms in Oxford. Sylvia has been involved in a number of tech startups and is a highly sought-after board member from major Norwegian companies needing tech, tech expertise. And she escaped from one of the board meetings just to come here to join us. Uh, and she's also a member of a 12-person high-level group advertising. Uh, so advising, sorry, you can take the, the chair next to each other. Yeah, perfect. Um, advising NATO on strategies, strategic implications of breakthrough technology developments. And then, last but not least, we're joined by Greg Reichberg, a research professor here at PRIO. Greg is a philosopher uh, studying international ethics. He has worked extensively on the ethics of military AI and leads a large research project titled Warring with Machines, Military Applications of Artificial Intelligence and the Relevance of Virtue Ethics. So we have a broad and, uh, and very interesting uh, panel for you, Jared, uh, and, uh, and I'll let you sort of have a chance to uh, sort of uh, sign up for... 
um, comments uh, for the uh, the panelists, and I'll, I'll uh, ask you sort of uh, a couple of in between questions. But um, uh, I'll uh, let the uh, the panelists start out uh, with with some comments, um, and I'll start with you, uh, Sylvia, um, with a sort of a broader question: How do you see the role of artificial intelligence evolving in the realm of international relations and geopolitics? Are there specific areas or applications where AI is likely to have the greatest impact in shaping global politics and security? Thank you. Um, first of all, thanks for um, having me and having us here. Uh, nice meeting you again, Jared. We met at uh, Bilderberg some years ago. And uh, it was really interesting to see how the world has changed just in those three, four years. Basically, AI was a topic for freaks. It went from science fiction to uh, exotic research. And suddenly, really since this uh, iPhone moment it had in November 30th, it has become uh, you know, everybody's uh, property, although most people just talk about it and very few uh, want to realize that it's a necessary tool. So um, I've been very fascinated by two books um, that have both been written more than... Yeah, let's say three years ago. One is the Surveillance uh, Capitalism book by Zhezhanda Zubov. And you would think it's written about China, but it's written about Google. And uh, many of the arguments we use today about, you know, the, anything from social credits to this incredibly strong control that uh, CCP or the state or, you know, whoever um, in China is, is trying to... to um, used to control the development of AI, I think we also have in the um, mega monopolies in the US. Uh, so what I'm really worried about is a um, polarized or a bipolar world uh, where we have two very different kind of centers of power. Uh, this is the um, AI superpowers idea of Kai Fu Li as well, who I think writes beautifully about the topic because he likes both. And he can show very clearly how our cultures and values and uh, priorities, traditional priorities, define the technology that we build. I was in China about a month ago and was very fascinated by how they work with AI. And they, they claim to have very different drivers for what they do than what we interpret when we talk about what AI is for them. So I believe that um, those countries that control the AI will have an incredibly big uh, economical and strategic advantage over the rest of the world. I'm worried that the rest of the world will stay a sort of a basal, feudal <laughs> almost dependency on uh, those who control all the large models of the future. I worry that the, even the small countries that are the big countries in Europe you know, are too late to the table to define good enough large language models and, and foundational models for industry or whatever you want. So I, I think it, this is a race. I think Jared is in wonderfully uh, precise when he talks about a two-year period to kind of settle the dust and see where we are and the new world order emerges. And I think that um, uh, it's good for us that uh, USA and China are competing and racing on this topic because they'll develop faster. I think it's even good for them. Uh, but I think it's bad for us that we are not um, following suit. A quick uh, follow-up question uh, to and, and your comment on on, uh, on Jared's point about the uh, sort of limitations on the Chinese uh, side, uh, both which in a sense is both on the supply and demand side, with the supply in the terms of of, uh, of limitations on on uh, export uh, from the U.S., but also on the sort of uh, 
limitations in the in the political model of uh, of China. We, we had this discussion also with China experts in the in the previous panel today, with uh, with an emphasis on the fear of uh, of the Chinese uh, Communist Party for uh, sort of losing control of uh, of uh, AI. Uh, is that something that that you also see? So I'm not a social scientist, and I think I might very quickly put my foot in, in somewhere it shouldn't go if I start commenting on this. But um, I, I want to make just two very short comments. Um, one is that um, having grown up in a communist country myself, I still think that we are being very naive or very um, culturally arrogant, maybe, when we say, you know, it's not a democracy, so it can't work. Uh, it has its own way of working, and uh, it has proven capacity to growth. And, you know, in a world that's stagnating and is incredibly unstable, and um, maybe not very long-termist growing other, uh, either, you know, growing at 3%, even though it gives, him a, uh, gives she a lot of problems, is still better than what we see in many other places uh, in the world. So the USA has the dollar and the world's dependency on the dollar, but China has this incredibly big local market, and they have 11 million people uh, graduating every year, and they are hungry, and they work very, very hard, and they don't have Trump. So, um, so I think um, um, they will do it their own way, which will be very different. It will be maybe more, they say it's Confucian. <laughs> we say it's totalitarian. Uh, America will do it in a market-driven fashion. Um, I, I agree that it's um, slowing them down and introducing all kinds of errors but when the Communist Party is trying to control and audit the models, etc. But on the other hand, I mean, who's there to control whatever Google or Microsoft or Amazon are doing, you know, with their totalitarian kind of control of the world? And I just come out of a board meeting where, you know, we were about to approve a uh, new cloud contracts with Microsoft and, I mean, and with, with the co-pilot and everything coming in. We are coming in a world where the whole corporate sector and the whole public sector are going to be monopolized by one technology company. I mean, how's that better than the CCP? I don't know. Uh, you'll have a chance to respond to that, uh, Jared. I, I, don't, uh, I don't work in a big tech company anymore, no, so yeah, I get yeah, to say what no, I want. Yeah. But I, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll go to, uh, to Katarzyna first. Um, so Katarzyna, from, from where you are standing, uh, how is the proliferation of AI technologies impacting the balance of, uh, of power among nations in the field of, uh, of geopolitics? Yeah, I think uh, Jared also touched upon this question in his um, presentation. So... If I may, I because I specialize, actually, I look at the defense side of things here in this big picture. So in general, the, the cutting-edge technology um, is widely regarded as, as being crucial element of military effectiveness, right? And an advantage, and it often translates, of course, into more effective weapons, which in turn translate into more uh, um, into greater military power, which in turn translates into, uh, into greater geopolitical power. So, so you could uh, say that um, possession of advanced military technologies, such as AI, AI-enabled systems, is, will be among the key elements that will be determining, is, is determining the, the distribution of power in the international system. And so in, when it comes to um, uh, AI, uh, the military that first will effectively integrate, adopt, uh, inter operational praxis, uh, institutionalize AI and data, uh, will acquire exponential 
uh, advances in that realm, and which also means that we'll get, it will give them uh, substantial advantages over adversaries. And you know, examples are many. Adopting AI and data, for instance, in uh, 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 in processing of information, gathering information, prioritizing information. Uh, that's what many of the countries talk about is, is key uh, in, uh, in uh, supporting uh, decision-making processes. It can make it much faster and better, at both at strategic level but also operational and tactical levels. Um, AI can contribute this way to, to make uh, uh, forces more resilient, defenses more resilient, um, uh, to attacks, for instance, attacks to the very core of, of military operations, which is uh, command control uh, and communications, which uh, all the countries we are very strongly focused on. Of course, AI will provide completely new levels of, of secure communications uh, based on quantum computing and quantum cryptography. And this also means... Uh, better possibilities for adversaries to destroy or degrade the very foundation of um, uh, the adversary's information technology-based warfare, uh, such as networks, uh, critical infrastructures, communications, space-based systems, which are key for military operations, but also to the very foundation of, of our societies, the way we, they are built. Um, and of course, very important elements is influence operations and operations in the cognitive domain. We see that happening already. So all the three major players and other countries as well, so the United States, China, uh, Russia, they all say we cannot afford to fall behind in this technological race. There are different, uh, slightly different you know, uh, focuses in that discussion, but basically that's the main message. And I think Putin was very kind of very blunt, put it very clearly, uh, he said that those countries, those players that managed to ride this technological wave, they will surge far ahead, and those who will fail to do so, they will be submerged and drowned. So basically, he sees this in a very kind of existential terms. When it comes to proliferation, it's a very, very important aspect of what we are seeing. Uh, and uh, the predicament is that many of the military relevant technologies uh, are becoming harder and harder to classify as military technologies to identify and classify. So uh, there are many of them are embedded in the commercial sector uh, rather than in military uh, industrial sectors, unlike during the Cold War. Uh, and this means also that the militaries are no longer the primary driver of, of technological innovations. They are looking to the commercial sector to turn uh, the dual-use technologies to new weapons, uh, weapon systems. Uh, uh, yeah. So, uh, so the, the, the problem is that the fusion, the diffusion, the proliferation of these military-relevant technologies, uh, it it's also spreads rarely a, a, a along this kind of typical geopolitical uh, uh, lines. It varies uh, across the globe. And, uh, and also what varies is the ability of the various militaries to actually adopt and take advantage of this, of this, of this <coughs> technologies. So there is an uneven distribution, uh, and that which will, of course, shape also, again, the distribution of power in, in the international system. This will influence also uh, security and, and stability in the various regions. Mm. So, Jared, I, I'll uh, I'll turn to you now, and, and uh, I'll uh, I hope you'll you'll uh, use the occasion also to uh, to say a little bit about sort of the concentration of uh, of power. Um, uh, the I, I but I also wanted to uh, because Sylvia is, is talking about the, uh, the, the the superpower competition uh, for uh, for uh, hegemonic uh, AI. Um, 
at the same time, at least, you know, what I'm hearing you say is that uh, that AI is also uh, perhaps in some ways at least contributing to leveling the playing fields in, in, in some ways. And uh, could you perhaps sort of expand a little bit on that? What do, and, and you touched upon this in, when it comes to these, these different trajectories that you see. Uh, I mean, there are certainly, you know, uncertainties here, but, uh, but is that, uh, are, are you seeing it primarily as a force for equalizing the, the, uh, the playing field or, or for power concentration? No, I, I, absolutely. And so what I, was, I talked about simultaneity in my remarks. Um, it, it's not, it, it's not, it's, it's simultaneity without parity though. Um, so there, there, there's room for other countries to emerge, but within, um, within the sort of broader ecosystem, you know, countries that are far behind in this space, um, they still have a long way to go. And I'll, I'll come back to, to a few examples of countries that are, you know, sort of riding the benefits of a level playing field. But one piece of context on this great power competition, it goes back to my, my point about how this is not Cold War II. Um, you know, there's no scenario where the world ends up defined by Chinese technology or defined by U.S. technology. The way that I sort of like to think about this is technology is the language of efficiency. Every country wants to be more efficient. Um, and countries, by the way, including democratic countries um, and authoritarian countries, will act out of total efficient self-interest, right? And, and they'll define efficiency, you know, in, 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 you know, curated ways, whether it's surveillance or economic efficiency. But when I look around the world, there's very few countries that technologically will go all in on the, on, on the U.S., very, very few. There's very few countries that will technologically go all in uh, on China. When, when you go around the world, what you see is something very different, which is countries basically in a path to becoming more efficient as they define it, um, are basically building a technological ecosystem that's a cocktail of Chinese technology and American technology. And there might be more of a slant towards one or the other, but they will act out of total self-interest in the name of efficiency. And so the way I look at this is you know, the technological competition between the U.S. and China. It's basically the two countries are offering two competing models of efficiency, right? So the, you know, you know, China's offering a kind of more top-down uh, model of efficiency. And by the way, there's, there's plenty of instances where that model you know, for a country gets them more efficiency. Uh, then the U.S. is offering a more kind of you know, democratic, free market um, model of kind of techno-democratic efficiency. And you look at things like, you know, vaccines. It's a great example of that system producing something more efficient, right? You know, the system of peer-reviewed separation of, you know, church and state from a government and private sector perspective produced in the Western democratic world, not one, but two mRNA vaccines that worked extremely, extremely well relative to the ones, you know, produced elsewhere. Um, and so my view on this is, um, you know, these two competing models of efficiency are going to go head to head. Um, and the answer to whose is work, it, 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 it can't be ideological. Um, when countries have their sort of efficiency at stake, um, at the end of the day, it's going to be which model produces better products for, for, for a particular, you know, country's, you know, you know, aspirations, right? And the market is asymmetric, but the, the market will determine based on the kind of composition of these, you know, kind of efficiency cocktails in each country, um, you know, who has the upper hand and who has, you know, less of a hand, um, you know, in, in specific, in specific, um, specific contexts. Sylvia? Thank you. Um, no, I just, um, I, I, I really believe that there is a game for, um, so Jared's talked about uh, Norway and the uh, swing states or swing positions for states. So uh, wh what I'm concerned about is that, um, you know, okay, so China is top down, we agree on that. 
But I disagree that USA is bottom-up in any way. We talk, we th when we talk about democracy, we think, you know, it's the, some sort of a majority, some sort of a common uh, set of ideals. But uh, really, this is controlled, as you yourself stated, by, uh, you know, a, a hyper-elite with uh, billions of dollars and billions of examples. As we say in AI, AI life starts at a billion examples, right? And, I mean, how, how you know, how does somebody... In, I don't know, in, in, in Minnesota or somewhere, start even participating in that discussion. Uh, so I think um, it's going to be a very polarized set of people, uh, institutions that will have the power to control this AI. And yes, they have a different set of, I believe they are kind of moral values, etc., that are building towards what they're going to be used for. Um, and I hope that we have a hybrid world where we use both. Uh, but I still think there is a really interesting play that Norway could play, uh, where we think about the social, soci social democratic AI. Help me, socially, social democratic AI, where so we we really are a little bit obsessive about this idea of you know equality and trust, and we have commonly financed um, healthcare, which is very good, even though we complain about it. Uh, we have uh, uh, welfare that really is distributed well in this country. And so I think that we could offer our data to the public system and the public system could take its opportunity and really its duty to develop models that will give us the most efficient, equally distributed healthcare system in the world, uh, you know, and buy whatever they need to buy from the US and China, etc. My worry is that we are not doing anything I mean, when you talk to companies, they don't have the budget. Oh, they're going to, you know, they're going to wait another year until they figure out, you know, what to do with their current crisis, and then they'll start thinking about AI. And as you said, a year from now might be too late. So it's the willingness to move that I, will, I, I believe is, is kind of the main weapon in this war. And I believe it's, if we think about the Cold War, it's not going to be a war of terror like the previous one was and the nuclear bomb, I think this is going to be a war of economy and value chains and, you know, who gets to feed their country best. And, and it's a war of efficiencies. And so I, I, just, I just really hope the rest of the world gets their kind of act together and starts moving without, you know, they hide behind this worry about GDPR in Europe. Now I'm being very provocative, I'm sorry. But, you know, just, just get moving because this is what's going to define our world a couple of years from now. Um, we are uh, at the uh, the Peace Research Institute Oslo, so I'm going to uh, to uh, sort of move uh, into uh, the domain that has sort of a, a particular relevance and interest to uh, to Prio, and where we have also been contributing. And I'll uh, I'll get to uh, to Greg uh, shortly, but I'll uh, I'll get to to Katarzyna first. Um, because this is also sort of one of one of your uh, sort of key areas, and you touched upon it already, but. Um, if you if you want to sort of give us uh, give us an overview in what ways are uh, AI technologies uh, today being employed in military applications and and how does this impact the, the arms race and, and military strategy among nations? Sure. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I've mentioned some some of it, uh, but uh, in general. Um, you know, AI, uh, AI-enabled systems, but also many of the other uh, new and disruptive technologies, such as uh, 3D printing, quantum computing, um, uh, unmanned system, of course, and other disruptive technologies, they are seen broadly as enablers and, and uh, um, 
yeah, enablers of strategic uh, and operational advantage in, in, in warfare. So they are pursued, they are very high on the agenda in many of the key countries, and so not only them, but, but China, of course, uh, United States and Russia. And for instance, um, uh, so I mentioned that AI is really important, really important element when it comes to um, uh, managing information. So both collecting information, sorting information, prioritizing information, which again is, is quite is central for command, control, communications, uh, um, surveillance, you know, uh, intelligence, etc. And again, this translates into this decision-making, decision-making. This is something that is, again, very high on the, top, on the priority list in many countries. Uh, so... Um, of course, AI is also being applied in uh, in automation for for uh, various uh, weapons platforms, surveillance systems, and uh, these technologies are also uh, very important. Um, uh, you know, hyperspectral imaging, uh, for instance, uh, computation, photography. Uh, they are also used to significantly improve uh, target detection, recognition, uh, tracking capabilities. Uh, early warning, air defenses, electronic warfare, not least. We see that also, you know, unfortunately being tested in Ukraine uh, on both sides, uh, where, you, where you, again, there is this, this, this um, aspect of collecting information, prioritizing information. So they are being tested and trained to more effectively jam uh, electronic signals, detect, uh, um, identify target, uh, uh, target and, and destroy targets. Of course, um, a broad spectrum of unmanned uh, weapon systems AI is, of various elements of AI is used there as well. Uh, so, you know, we are talking not only about killer drones, but also surveillance, uh, logistics, drones for logistics, you know, in air, uh, on water and, and, and under the water. So, for flying and driving uh, capabilities. So, this, this spectrum of application is broad. It touches upon every aspect, really. Uh, I mentioned also the cognitive domain, uh, cyber uh, domain, uh, of course, secure communications, uh, quantum uh, cryptography. So this is this is very very broad, and I, I mentioned how this actually stimulates the arms race. And basically, again, the logic is this is something the country, these major players, but also actually uh, what is um, different about this development compared to the Cold War is that that this this proliferation and diffusion of this um, uh, this kind of systems it actually also is. Small and major uh, uh, medium uh, powers are trying to get advantage of that. So we're talking about France, we're talking Singapore, Israel, uh, uh, and many other countries, which, which is also kind of, it's, it's a different characteristic compared to what was before. So, uh, and that, again, this stimulates the arms race, right? And, and, uh, and, and the idea that, that this, is, this is actually existential development. Thank you. And then uh, we'll move to you, uh, Greg. Um, because as, as AI technologies are, are then being integrated into, into military systems, um, as an ethicist, uh, what kind of ethical guidelines or principles do you believe should be established to, to govern the use of AI in, in warfare and uh, ensure responsible decision-making on the, on the battlefield? Okay. It, maybe just a preliminary uh, comment to tie in with some of the you know, previous discussion. I... There is a, a concern in some quarters that um, the uh, introduction of AI into military planning, military uh, execution, and so forth will lead to a dangerous de-skilling. In other words, an over-reliance on the technology. There's a tremendous amount of hype around it right now. Um, 
and j just to take you know what's happened in Gaza as an example, uh, you know this was a debacle for the Israeli military, and uh, I think part of the reason you know part of the the reason why they the, the the Israeli military responded so slowly so badly was that they were overly reliant on some of the technological systems that they had built around Gaza, right? And they had underestimated the uh, the Hamas. Fighters' ability to find holes in their in the their 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 systems. For instance, taking out the cell towers. So the same thing goes with reliance on AI for uh, decision making. I mean, there's a, there's a, you know a whole discourse now about um, big data and the centrality of big data. Uh, there's a, an excellent report put out by the United States um, Special Forces University. It's entitled Big Data for Generals and Everyone Over 40. Okay, so I certainly qualified for that one. But a lot of the, the, um, the report is about over-reliance on big data, thinking it's going to give you an answer, a quick recommendation to what you need to do. And they point out that it, 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 you know, there's a dashboard, and you're going to press a button, you're going to get the answer. It doesn't work that way. You need people who are competent, both in understanding the way systems work, but also understanding where the limitations of these systems are. So one thing they emphasize in using big data in making battlefield decisions, you also need area experts on board right, who are able to you know, sift, assess the information and the recommendations that are being uh, uh, put out by the system. Okay, now getting to your uh, question, Henrik. The, okay, I think it's worthwhile recognizing that AI systems have been around for quite a long time, depending on how you define AI. So we've had rule-based systems since the, at least the 1990s, you know, air defense systems, battlefield coordination systems. Uh, and those systems are understood pretty well. Uh, they've gone through extensive testing. However, problems occur even there. Uh, you know, the, the problem with the, the, the Boeing, uh, what was it, 7, I wrote down the number, 730, the Boeing 737 MAX. That was all rule-based AI systems. Uh, but there was an improper interface between the, uh, the, the, the models that, 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 that using algorithms that, that had been designed by engineers and the models in the mind of the users, namely the pilots. And so, okay, and we know about what disasters resulted. You, the introduction of deep learning into military systems uh, has real benefits, and that's why uh, militaries are, are starting to adopt these. Uh, they promote much better automation, more flexible automation, and people are calling it autonomy. Although speech about um, machine autonomy predates actually deep learning systems. But anyway, it's got real benefits, but it has the, the risks are also there, right? And, and there are risks that you don't have with the rule based systems. So, you know, for instance, you've got the issue with deep learning depends on data sets, big data sets, okay? So there's a link with, you know, big data. Um, but it's very hard to call um, adequate data sets for armed conflict. 
right? It's not like getting data sets for, you know, consumer, you know, that's sort of, you know, tracking consumer patterns. Our armed conflict is, is, is first of all, it's, it's an arena of chaos. Secondly, it's not an arena that, that where there's a whole lot of data on specific enough and broad enough that you can devise a machine learning um, uh, method from it. You, um, so the, um, so you, that one risk is comes that you're, you're just going to design a machine to operate according to the conditions of the last conflict, not that the, con the conflict that you're in. The, um, there's also the problem of AI brittleness, right? which means that, you know, right now what we have is modular or, you know, weak, so-called weak AI, AI that's designed for a specific purpose in a specific setting. But we don't have general AI, and maybe we never will. But human beings, the human cognitive apparatus is, is, is by far the, the, the best information processing apparatus that we have now because it, it is readily applicable to a whole multitude of settings. AI is not like that. So when you take an AI designed for one setting, including even one battlefield setting, and then, then you, the setting changes and it's different. The system may not know how to react, and, and, and strange things will happen that are contrary to what the designer wants. So you've got all these, these then you've got the problem of emergent behavior, where when sisters, systems interlock, again, unexpected things happen because the designers don't, don't adequately, even they don't adequately understand all of the intricacies of the system. And add that to that, a lot of algorithms are designed by large teams. And no one person has an overview of the whole, you know, the whole algorithm. So, you know, this is, we need to look for ways of mitigating these risks. So there was a, uh, not long ago, we had a conference at the Vatican on thinking ethically about weapon systems and put out a conference statement afterwards. And there was a statement I'll just read, which I think summed up how to think ethically about the risks involving use of the, you know, AI, particularly deep learning in the military context. And this is, this is a simplified uh, version of the statement. Um, um, to manage these risks, we should engage in rigorous testing, evaluation, validation, and verification of AI-enabled weapons. Such testing should be cradle-to-grave. It has to be cradle-to-grave because these are self-learning systems, so they're always changing. So you can't just test the system and say, okay, now it works. You've got to continually revisit you know, the testing. Should be cradle-to-grave. Uh, and should be followed up by gradual fielding. You can't just set it out there all at once. You need to kind of test the waters. Uh, in clearly defined operational envelopes. Right? And that's especially the case for autonomous weapon systems. You don't want to launch them out. Uh, there are some settings where they can more safely be used. Safely meaning uh, low risk of, of uh, civilian harm. There are some settings where, where that, that's more possible than others. Airspace, for instance, undersea. So you need to think about clear, the clearly defined operational envelopes. And then finally, with appropriate explainability. 
And all of this should take place in parallel with a legal review of these weapons. So those are the, I would call those some of the key ethical considerations in fielding, developing and fielding, you know, AI-enabled weapon systems. Um, as I mentioned initially, you're, you're a member of this NATO uh, committee uh, on, uh, on uh, breakthrough technologies. Uh, this is not your, your main sort of uh, field, but, uh, but are you concerned about sort of the, uh, the, the military uh, applications of, uh, of AI? Two corrections. So um, I'm not a member anymore since uh, approximately January or so. It's, this is the second round of this, uh, but the first group uh, created a couple of really interesting uh, institutional innovations where we try to get NATO to think a little bit more like both an investor and, uh, and an accelerator, really, and uh, promote some um, faster, more applied, more, more um, contextual innovation. Uh, because I think there are lots of uh, generals and people over 40 <laughs> that, uh, that are very used to think uh, strategically in terms of things that say bang, you know, and if there is a very different way of um, fighting, it's... Uh, but it was... Um, so, uh, I, and I will answer your question by saying the same thing that I think Stephen Hawking said, that, you know, if you're not simultaneously fascinated and uh, worried, you haven't been paying attention. So, yes, of course... Uh, but I think it's very much like what Greg was saying now, that uh, AI is... Uh, and, uh, and I'd like to actually... What, uh, Christina? Katarina. Katarina and, and, and uh, Jared were saying, you know, so AI is a great servant, a terrible master. It, it, it's not useful without the human touch. Mm. Uh, humans are super flexible and super uh, robust. And as, yes, they have this thing called the free will which we don't really know what is, et cetera, but, but you know, um, they can be counted on maybe not following the envelope uh, if they decide that this is really not right anymore. I think AI is uh, very good at mashing up old information, but it's incredibly far smarter and faster than humans are. And so humans who don't use AI in whatever their tools are will be outcompeted by humans who do. And so you won't have much of a choice. It'll be like, you know, being colorblind in a world that's consisting only of red and greens. Uh, so, so I think we will have to use it and we will have a ton of new ethical problems to, to, to deal with. We have to remember that, yes, AI is not uh, very fair, but neither are humans. AI is not always predictable, but neither are humans. So same sort of problems we have to solve with us, we have to solve with the AI. And I think the, the quicker we go and do more of what you're doing, the quicker we'll be able to use it in some sort of an even semi-fair way. And then I think the Israeli example, but also the Ukraine example, are very, very interesting because as much as we worry about AI, people are still killed by bullets or by, by missiles. So, you know, there's always going to be the old uh, axe trick. Um, we're soon uh, coming in for for a landing. Uh, I'm sure we could uh, we could have kept this discussion going for for hours and hours. But I'm, I'll uh, and you'll get the final word, uh, Jared, to uh, to sum things up. And, no, no, uh, no pressure. Uh, but but I wanted also uh, Katarzyna to 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 just um, uh, 
uh, touch on uh, we, we've talked about China and uh, and the US, but uh, but of course we're we're currently uh, worried, especially on the European scene, for uh, for the war in Ukraine and and Russian capabilities, AI capabilities. And could you take us through, you know, what what have the what, what the major uh, AI investments or developments on the on the Russian side? Uh, have been and and uh, and uh, you know what what the uh, what the possible implications are of those uh, both in the in the short and long term. Sure, um, and I I, <laughs> I I talk a lot about this topic, and I you know I almost have to have like make a um, write a footnote that what we are seeing in Ukraine is almost it seems almost counterintuitive to talk about high technology in Russia. When we are seeing, you know, the Russian forces in trenches, it almost looks, you know, the artillery, artillery duels. It, it almost looks like 19th century warfare rather than high technology warfare with, with, with uh, you know, uh, broader scale use of, of uh, semi-autonomous weapon systems, right? So, but still, it's, it, and I think it refers also to what you were saying, Greg. You know, on the one hand, we have this high-tech uh, maybe hyper focus on AI and and you know military scrambling to get ahead, and on the other hand, we have also you know all this sort of yeah, still uh, you could say nineteenth century approaches to to warfare. It's it 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 happens alongside, right? And the same is actually actually the case in Russia. And Russia has not deprioritized the focus, the hyper focus on the on on AI, which they had since over the past decade or so. And uh, and and actually, it's it's not uh, despite what is happening, the, the weaknesses, economic and military, in in in, in because of Ukraine, but actually because of that. Be- so the logic Russia applies is that uh, it will take too much time for Russia to catch up militarily with the West, uh, the linear traditional way, and emerging disruptive technology and AI is on the top of the list may actually provide Russia the 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 cap- the, the advantages in certain areas and maybe superiority in certain areas on battlefields. So that's the logic they apply and they pursue uh, AI uh, in, in selected areas. Uh, and uh, I will not go, I, I will just give you a few examples very briefly. The list is actually very long of what they have as programs, uh, command control and decision making. Uh, there may be over-reliance, as you say. There is absolutely the danger you have identified, Greg. Uh, and they are absolutely not, perhaps not reliable to the, to, to the, they do not scale up to the ambition. But where we will be with that two years from now? I mean, that's, I think it's, the, the answer is uh, much less certain. So Putin, uh, in December, he said that they want to, he actually um, ordered, you know, uh, working on integrating AI at all the, fe- the levels of decision making in, in the Russian armed forces. So that's the ambition. And basically, he also points to Ukraine and the experiences from Ukraine. And he says that the most effective weapon system they see are those that operate in quickly and in almost automatic mode. And I, I don't know if he, he was talking about automation, not necessarily uh, autonomy, but still. Uh, unmanned weapon systems is another big, big priority for the Russian government. They, before the invasion, they have more than 100 different types of uh, of AI, um, uh, of sorry, of UAVs uh, at the different levels of development. Uh, many of them have been tested in Syria, and they are being used also in Ukraine. So, for instance, the Kubla um, um, UAV uh, that we've seen in Ukraine is um, uh, is uh, said to be to have uh, some uh, the use some AI, for instance, for a target um, uh, acquisition. 
uh, Lancet 3 loitering munition, which Ukrainians have been very, very concerned about, um, has been spotted also uh, in many places uh, along the front. It's also claimed to have some AI-enabled uh, of uh, abilities like object recognition and uh, support for, for also for the, for the flight. Um, and yeah, air defenses, electronic warfare, again, we see some systems being tested in Ukraine. Um, uh, using elements of AI, such as the Belina, for instance, system. So, but overall, uh, just to um, just to give you an idea, I think I would say that the Russian AI applications uh, in defense are at early stages of maturity. So, Russia basically is using these systems to 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 enhance existing legacy systems, both nuclear, non-nuclear, and non-military elements. But alongside, they have what they call risky projects. Uh, so projects that can be, uh, you know, that are much more, let's say, uh, daring, that may fail, but also may may yield much more uh, advantage. So, so uh, the Russian, you know, they, they are struggling when it comes to to um, because of sanctions, etc. But they are not crumbling yet. You, we're we're uh, a little bit into overtime, but I'll I'll give you the chance, uh, Jared, to uh, to sort of uh, stitch it all together. Uh, if you have any sort of final uh, remark that you want to uh, to uh, to make uh, to the panel, I, I was just watching the the David Beckham documentary, so I was thinking injury time, not 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 overtime. But, but that's, that's, that's my joke for the day. Um, I was watching the David Beckham documentary, though. Uh, separate separate thing to ponder. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll make three three points. One, at the risk of, of of being accused of being evasive, there's a question that you asked me before that I forgot to answer about level countries that are leveling the playing field. And I'll just give you an example. Again, I said simultaneity without parity, but within that simultaneity without parity, there's an opportunity for countries that had not been seen as having a seat at the technological table um, to be well positioned here. And I think the UAE is a good example of this. So if you look at the sort of the AI tech stack, um, right, you basically, you know, require energy, you require data, you require compute power, you require models, and you require applications. And the, the UAE is, um, um, you know, quite differentiated in, in each of those areas relative to their peers, right? So if you look at the Middle East, you know, Saudi Arabia has a lot of capital, Qatar has a lot of capital, Kuwait has a lot of capital, um, and UAE has a lot of capital. So why, why is UAE a story about more than just Capital in this regard. Uh, for starters, on the energy side, uh, they already do a lot of experimentation with with flare gas. Right, essentially, there were actually some 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 uh, attempts to use flare gas to, to 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 offer an alternative energy source for for Bitcoin miners. Um, there, there's now a lot of thinking about how do you use flare gas as an alternative energy source for um, for providing um, you know uh, some of that that compute power. Um, second, on on um, on data, they already have a pretty rich data ecosystem. Um, in part, just because of the technological ecosystem. System that they've built, but they're also the regional hub for for, for you know every you know international uh, business. So they've sort of just set up an ecosystem there where they're they're already sitting uh, on a lot of data, and they have the capital to go out and acquire more data as well. And essentially, you know, you go back to sort of this 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 point I made earlier about open source models fine tuned to kind of more context specific verticals. Um, you know, they're really well positioned to create almost like a commodity like a commodities market 
for 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 data, um, right? You know where you know you know different verticals can essentially you know be kind of commoditized out on, on the open market. Um, third, on on on, on uh, compute power because they um, had a big play with Global Foundry, they have real credibility on the infrastructure side. Um, on uh, models, they're the first country to release an open source large language model with Falcon. They've subsequently released uh, released others, and then in terms of applications, again, they're pretty well. Uh, they're pretty well advanced here. They've had an AI ministry for you know seven years before it was trendy, and they've been experimenting with a lot of applications of AI, mostly in the sort of security in the security space. And so I mention this because a country like UAE, um, if all they had was capital, um, you know that wouldn't necessarily position them in a differentiated way. But they have a credit the combination of credibility plus capital, um, it puts them in a position to be more flexible and demanding about who they work with and, 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 and what they do. So I think the UAE is sort of an interesting, interesting country to watch. Then on, on, on Ukraine, just to sort of mention, you know, on Ukraine, which is a country I've looked at a lot, um, I think what's interesting about Ukraine is, you know, the t what it reminds us, and by the way, Israel reminds us of this as well, the nature of warfare is neither drifting in the direction of a networked war or getting stuck in the direction of an old war. Um, you know, if you look at Ukraine, it's a combination of the most high-tech networked operations and literally like World War II-style <coughs> combat with World War II tanks in, the, in this case. In the case of Israel, it's a combination of huge networked capability and literally people, terrorists landing on hang gliders and cutting through fences and doing the sort of most traditional um, old school, you know, terrorist tactics, right? And so as we advance, we're not leaving the old tactics behind. Um, and then on Ukraine, look, I think, you know, one of the interesting stories about technology, there's sort of two interesting stories about technology with Ukraine. One, you know, why did the cyber war that was supposed to be so dominant alongside the physical war never really manifests itself in a game-changing way. Um, ever since 2014, I've had this thesis that there's nothing that Russia will do to the U.S. and elsewhere that they won't do to Ukraine first and worse. And so that first and worse principle means that, yes, Ukraine has been a hub of you know, Russian innovation for nefarious cyber activity, but it's also been a hub of innovation for, um, you know, sort of cyber counterinsurgency, which the Ukrainians are quite good at. And in phase one of the war, the first year of the war, I actually think the more interesting technology story was not, um, you know, Russia's, you know, capabilities, not even Ukraine's defenses. It was just how bad Russian OPSEC was. Um, right, you know these Ukrainian, you know these Russian, you know, you know generals literally getting their, you know, SIM cards jammed and buying Ukrainian SIM cards, um, and then talking about, you know, you know, calling back home and having their sort of geolocation, you know, determine exactly um, exactly where they are. And then the 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 drone story to me is where this gets interesting um, because. Ukraine and Russia were kind of starting, you know, Russia actually started off in a more advanced place um, with, with drones, but then Ukraine became a hub of innovation for the integration of machine intelligence into drone technology. You have 200 plus Ukrainian drone companies that have emerged since this, and since the war started. And the interesting thing about military technology is it's all speculative until it's used on the battlefield. And in Ukraine, they basically go from the garage to the battlefield, right? And, you know, they can test it in real time. Um, now, what's happened is as the Russians have kind of caught on to this, um, the, the kind of second mover advantage um, that, Ukraine, that Ukraine had in this, it's now falling by the wayside and Russia's really caught up in drone technology. And you can thank the Iranians for that and some, you know, some, some, other, some other companies for that. But also, um, you know, there's an OPSEC challenge around innovation of drone technology in Ukraine 
um, in Ukraine itself. She's very, you know, even though there's a war, there's very, very penetrate a lot of sort of Russian penetration into these kind of commercial uh, ecosystems. And then I'll, I'll finish with just sort of a, a closing observation in general. And I'll, I'll, I'll start with something that lacks total humility, which is quoting my own book, but I'm going to do it in service of doing something very humble, which is telling you uh, where I got something wrong, uh, which is hard for me. Um, uh, so, you know, I had co-written this book in 2014 called The, the New Digital Age, and, and the book starts off with kind of a bold statement that, um, you know, the internet is the most significant thing that human beings have built that they don't fully understand. It's the greatest experiment in anarchy the world will ever, will ever see. Um, you know, 300 and something pages later, we barely mentioned AI in the book, um, let alone generative AI. And I never thought I would have to revise that statement, but, you know, it's just sort of striking that, you know, a book written in 2014 that I'd like to think was pretty forward-leaning, um, you know, yes, it missed AI, but it shows you that AI was really not as meaningful a part of the zeitgeist. And you look at generative AI today, and I would just replace the internet with generative AI, and I think that statement becomes even more the case. And having kind of come from the big tech world, what I would say about the last chapter of technology is it was seemingly ungovernable. And I say seemingly ungovernable because you can govern it. You can regulate big tech companies, um, you know, but there, there, there's some threshold that hasn't been crossed yet. And a lot of the regulation is, you know, inadvertently penalized, you know, startups and smaller companies and less the, the, the bigger companies. I don't see how generative AI is governable at all. I, 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 think, I think it's seemingly ungovernable. Uh, sorry, I, I think it's rather than seemingly ungovernable, I think it's totally ungovernable. And I, that's kind of a bias towards the fact that I think we're moving in this kind of open source um, you know, model direction. And if the models themselves are open sourced, um, I mean, if you can't even get you know, the entire world to work together in any meaningful way on climate change and child safety and very basic things, how are you going to get the type of global governance structure and collective action around something as nuanced <coughs> and complex um, and sort of high stakes and zero sum as, as generative AI? And so we're, I think we need a different mindset. You know, like there's still a governance push is still good because I think it creates certain types of norms, but we shouldn't confuse ourselves into thinking that we can create a global governance architecture around generative AI that's enforceable in a way that, that, that really kind of preserves the international order. It's going to have to be augmented by something else, um, and I guess that's something for, for Prio to, to, to ponder. Exactly, and and uh, <laughs> we're going to conclude the uh, uh, your ending on a, on a, on obviously a big topic uh, and an important one, and and this is concluding the Prio AI days for now. But uh, but I'm sure that uh, the Prio will be back both with more events, but also with more relevant research. And uh, I hope uh, you will all join me. Thank you all for coming. But but please join me in, in a big hand of applause for Jared and for the panel. And thank you uh, so much for coming. Thank you.